to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. One of the big stories of the week that's getting only moderate attention is that there is a new strain of China virus that appeared in the United Kingdom, and it has people more than a little bit worried. Since the virus became a pandemic earlier this year, more than 77 million cases have been reported. It's cost more than 1.7 million lives around the world, but almost 54 million people have recovered. So what is it about this new strain? They're saying that it's more easily spread. Is that something to worry about? Is it worse than what we've already seen? Will the vaccine protect us from it? Well, first off, I'm not a doctor and I don't have most of the answers to the questions that people are asking about this new piece of news. But I am an analyst and I've been doing a lot of research on what it all means. So I'd like to share with you some of the interesting information about viruses in general and about this virus specifically that I found in my research. There's a lot about this virus, the COVID-19 coronavirus, that the medical gurus and scientists still don't know. But they know a lot about viruses in general. So here's some of what we do know. COVID-19 stands for coronavirus disease, that's the COVID part, and 19 stands for the year in which it first appeared. It's the one we call the China virus because it originated in China, of course, in Wuhan, China, to be specific. When it first appeared, the Chinese wanted us to believe that it had originated in what is called a live food market. That's where they sell live animals of all kinds, everything from fish and chickens to exotic animals and even dogs, to be bought live and then slaughtered for food. To Western eyes, this is pretty awful. But we even have such markets here in a number of American cities, basically unregulated. I've written about this before. Well, anyway, the Chinese government wanted us to believe that the virus started in this market where they said that bats were being sold. And the virus apparently comes from some sort of bat origin. Well, it turned out Bats were not being sold there at all, and anyway, the virus didn't start there. It started in a level 4 bio lab eight miles away. This lab is in the city of Wuhan, a city of 11 million people, which is a major industrial hub in China. And a level 4 lab is a maximum security facility that is authorized to study the world's most dangerous pathogens. Now, in early January, I received a report that a lab accident had occurred in that facility and that a dangerous virus had been released that was already causing a rapidly spreading illness and that it was likely to cause a pandemic if they could not contain it. The report indicated that it was unlikely that it would be contained because it was spreading so fast and the Chinese were, so far, unable to contain it. But I'm digressing because before I get into all that, I want to tell you a bit about viruses in general. COVID-19 is a virus that's related to 
the SARS virus, which is also a coronavirus, and that describes the virus that has those little spikes on it that look like little crowns. Now, without getting too technical, and bear with me because this will only take a minute, but what I'm about to say may help explain a lot about COVID-19. Viruses are small, non-living parasites, and they can only multiply or replicate inside of a host cell. Now, there are two types of viruses. One is based on DNA and one is based on RNA, and they're coded by a protein. I won't get into all the technical details of that, but the virus replicates by injecting its genetic material into a host cell, and then it takes control of that cell. And once it does that, it can make copies of its genetic material, either DNA or RNA, and make new viral proteins inside of the host cell. And once there, it can make multiple copies of itself in that single cell. And then when it releases these copies, it can invade and infect new host cells. So all of a sudden, you have an army of infected cells and they infect other cells and so forth. And this can all happen very quickly. That's the short version about what is known about viruses. And here's another thing scientists know. Viruses mutate. That's what they do. They mutate. They change. So when the virus replicates itself inside the host cell, small changes occur in its genetic sequencing. And these changes or mutations affect the way the virus behaves. So why is all this important? Because these changes in behavior can have significant consequences. And by the way, these changes are not always bad. They may actually weaken the virus and inhibit its ability to spread, or they may change the nature or the severity of the symptoms that a patient may have. And we've seen a lot of that over the last year. The good news is that science has already reached a level that enables our scientists and our doctors to track these changes, and they're better aware than ever of the interactions between the virus on the one hand and the weapons that our scientists are developing against it on the other hand. Now, this coronavirus is an RNA virus, like the flu and the measles as opposed to a DNA virus like smallpox or herpes. This means, among other things, that it is highly prone to changes and mutations. In fact, according to Dr. Mark Schleiss, who is a pediatric infectious disease specialist and an investigator with the University of Minnesota's Institute of Molecular Virology, he said, quote, in the world of RNA viruses, change is the norm. We expect RNA viruses to change frequently. That's just their nature, unquote. So that was the good news. Now, the bad news is that there is still a lot of disagreement among scientists about what all this means, because there is still a lot they don't know about this virus. And there's a reason for that. And we're coming back to what I said before. This virus is not a product of Mother Nature. It's a product of a bioweapons lab in Wuhan, China. Mm -hmm. 
and it has characteristics that are foreign to a natural virus, which means it may behave in ways that a naturally occurring virus wouldn't be expected to behave and that our scientists might not expect. Virologist Professor Jonathan Stoy in London, England, said in an interview with Medical News Today, quote, a mutation is a change in genetic sequence. The fact of a mutational change is not of primary importance, but the functional consequences are, unquote. And there, as Shakespeare's Hamlet said, aye, there's the rub. Because it is difficult, if not impossible, to predict what the functional consequences of any mutational change will be. And when a virus is a product of a laboratory, it may do unexpected things when it's released into the environment. Some scientists believe that the COVID-19 virus has already mutated over 4,000 times since it went global. So what does all this information mean for us? Well, one of the things it means is that we don't yet have enough information about this virus to stop it in its tracks. Well, we knew that. But we do have the first vaccines, and that's a lot. And we got them in record time, which is in itself amazing and a credit to President Trump, who championed the Warp Speed program to develop vaccines and get them out to the people. Scientists also believe that the vaccines that have been developed so far may also protect us from this new strain of virus that popped up in the UK and Australia and is already starting to make its way around the world. But we still have a long way to go. The vaccines are important because they will slow down the spread of the virus significantly and save lives, many lives. But because we still don't know nearly enough about this crazy virus, we don't know how long the vaccines will work. And we don't know if they will work on all the new forms of mutation that may be coming down the pike. Because it is in the nature of RNA viruses to mutate frequently, as I said. The flu vaccines, for example, need to be continually updated because the flu virus changes from year to year. And we need to get a new shot every year. That's why. This may be true of the COVID-19 virus as well, that it will hang around and it will change from year to year and it will require new vaccines from year to year. But there's a great deal we simply don't know yet. So it comes down to this. We need to learn how to live with this virus. We need to open up our nation, protect ourselves with masks and social distancing, if that's what's required, and protect ourselves and our neighbors in every other way possible, including vaccines. But we also need to live. So we need to open up our country and learn how to strike the balance that will enable us to be both safe and live lives that are fulfilled in a thriving economy. The virus is something we just need to learn to live with. It's nasty, but I'm afraid it's not going away anytime soon. So let's figure out how to make our lives work in spite of the virus. Now here's a question for you. Do you think the 2020 elections were stolen? Do you think that fraud and illegal vote manipulation were responsible for the outcome? 
Well, if you're listening to this program, the answer to both those questions is probably a resounding yes. And you have plenty of company. About 80 million people agree with you. And the truth is, the evidence is overwhelming. Hundreds of sworn affidavits attest to improper and even illegal behavior, as well as videos and audits of the actual voting machines, which showed that votes had been flipped or altered or erased. And yet the Democrats are ignoring the evidence. In fact, they don't even want to hear the evidence. And worse, the courts are doing the same thing. They're ignoring the evidence and throwing out case after case on the basis of standing. If they do acknowledge that these affidavits have been filed, they call them false, they call them lies, or they say they're irrelevant. And they are barreling ahead towards a January 20th inauguration of Joe Biden. The facts be damned. There are a lot of strange things happening in our country right now. Things we would never have expected to happen, and yet here we are. We have just lived through an election where vote counting was stopped in the middle in at least six key swing states. That's never happened before, that the vote counting just stopped in the middle. And the poll watchers were sent home. And then the vote counting continued without the poll watchers to make sure that the counting was done properly. And lo and behold, in the morning, Donald Trump's massive win had completely flipped to Joe Biden. Antrim County in Michigan is a very good example because a full audit of 22 voting machines was permitted by the court and the findings were released to the public by court order. That audit showed that votes for Trump had been flipped for Biden. According to the report, the vote totals on November 3rd were starkly different from those after November 3rd. On November 3rd, the initial vote count was 7,769 votes for Biden and only 4,509 votes for Trump. A recount two days later showed that Biden had only gotten 7,289 votes and Trump had won with 9,783 votes. But on November 21st, after the court ordered audit, of the actual machines, it appeared that Biden had only received 5,960 votes and Trump had received 9,748 votes. Now it's hard to follow the numbers when I'm reading them to you like this, but let me assure you, they don't add up. One thing is clear though, and that is that Trump won and by a margin of nearly 3,800 votes. So how do you account for these differences in the vote totals? Well, there is a way. Because the court ordered the audit and then ordered that the audit results be released to the public, we now know how those votes changed so dramatically. How Biden won on the first night, but then when the votes were recounted and the audit was carried out, it showed that he had lost and by a significant amount. And the question is, 
Is this a red flag about voting in other areas where these same machines, all Dominion voting machines, had been tampered with or programmed to produce the results that Biden would win and Trump would lose? We're going to talk more about this, and I want to read a little bit of this report because it's very interesting. And the outcome of the election in Antrim County may be a window into the strange results that came from the six key swing states that overturned a very large Trump showing on the night of November 3rd and a massive loss for Trump on the morning of November 4th. How can you explain that? What are we missing when it comes to understanding what happened that night? It's not enough to say that just using a little common sense can help us see through the corruption and understand what happened. It needs to be proven. It needs to be explained. And that's exactly what we're going to do right after the break. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. Fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Okay, welcome back. Now, just before the break, we were talking about the Dominion Voting Machines audit in Antrim County, Michigan, and what they found. It was really quite astonishing, and honestly, it makes me so angry that neither the Democrats nor the courts, or are they really the same thing? I'm not sure. We'll talk about that later. Anyway, it makes me crazy that neither the Democrats or the courts are paying any attention to the results of the audit or to any other testimony of what actually went on on election night. So 
I want to read to you from the report of the Antrim County Audit. It's really interesting, and it may even hold a few surprises for you. Let's see what you think. Quote, the purpose of this forensic audit is to test the integrity of Dominion Voting System in how it performed in Antrim County, Michigan for the 2020 election. We conclude that the Dominion Voting System is intentionally and purposefully designed with inherent errors to create systemic fraud and influence election results. The system intentionally generates an enormously high number of ballot errors. The electronic ballots are then transferred for adjudication. The intentional errors lead to bulk adjudication of ballots with no oversight, no transparency, and no audit trail. This leads to voter or election fraud. Based on our study, we conclude that the Dominion voting system should not be used in Michigan, and we further conclude that the results of Antrim County should not have been certified, unquote. It went on to say that, quote, the Antrim County clerk and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson have stated that the election night error detailed above by the vote flip from Trump to Biden was the result of human error. The allowable election error rate established by the Federal Election Commission guidelines is of one error in 250,000 ballots, or 0.0008%. We observed an error rate of 68.05%. This demonstrated a significant and fatal error in security and election integrity. The results of the Antrim County 2020 election are not certifiable. This is a result of machine and or software error, not human error." Unquote. Well, that is an extraordinary statement by an expert who studied every race on the ballot in Antrim County. Another thing he found was this, quote, a high error rate in the election software, in this case 68.05%, reflects an algorithm used that will weight one candidate greater than another. For example, weight a specific candidate at two-thirds to approximately one-third ratio. This allows the user to apply a weighted numerical value to candidates and change the overall result. The declaration of winners can be done on a basis of points, not votes." Unquote. In other words, every vote that one candidate gets is worth twice as much as what the other candidate gets, if the ratio is two-thirds to one-third. That's not right. Every vote should be one vote, not a fraction of a vote, but we've talked about fractionizing votes before. It's insidious because it deprives the American people, every legitimate voter, of one person, one vote, which is guaranteed by the Constitution and the standard for the American electoral system. And here's another thing. 
These are not human errors. The Antrim County Clerk and the Secretary of State both said that election night errors, like flipping from Trump to Biden, was the result of human error. But the audit showed otherwise. And these machine-made errors went way beyond the thresholds that are listed in federal guidelines. The audit report says this high error rate proves the Dominion voting system is flawed and does not meet state or federal election laws. And then there was this, quote, the Dominion software configuration logs show that all write-in ballots were flagged to be diverted automatically for adjudication. This means that all write-in ballots were sent for adjudication by a poll worker or election official to process the ballot based on voter, quote, intent, unquote. Adjudication files allow a computer operator to decide to whom to award those votes or trash them, unquote. In other words, it's the poll worker who decides who gets the vote, not the voter. And here's another thing. The report said in the logs, all but two of the override options were enabled on these machines, thus allowing any operator to change those votes. This gives the system operators carte blanche to educate the ballots. In this case, 81.96% of the total cast ballots with no audit trail or oversight, unquote. This just gets worse and worse. This report would be shocking if there weren't all kinds of confirming testimony from witnesses of other bad behavior by people who were supposed to be ensuring the fairness and legality of the voting procedures. Here's the bottom line, and it raises far more questions than it answers. The 2020 elections were overwhelmingly fraudulent, at least in the six swing states that have been singled out for review. And the Democrats and the courts are ignoring the evidence. So the question is, why? Well, the first obvious answer is that they don't want Donald Trump to have another four years in the White House. That's easy. At least that explains the Democrats' willingness to overlook their own obvious implication in the voting fraud. And this seems to be systemic. After all, they have overlooked Biden's own illegal behavior as he leveraged his position as vice president to enrich his family. And in at least one case, he bragged about it. And we know that the Democrats have been involved in dirty tricks before. For example, when they sidelined Bernie Sanders in order to get Hillary Clinton on the ticket in 2016. Or when they paid for a scandalous and completely false dossier to implicate Donald Trump in a scandal involving Russia, or when they made up stories and secret witnesses to frame him for trading his influence for political secrets, which he didn't. So we understand that the Democrats are up to their necks in this kind of behavior. And I've talked about this before at some length. I have little faith in either the honesty or the integrity of the Democrats in today's political swamp. But why the courts? Well, there's an answer for some of that as well. 
Federal judges are appointed by the president and confirmed by Congress. And if a federal judge was appointed by Obama and now faces a Biden presidency, they are political at the core. And although they're supposed to apply their judicial authority according to the Constitution and federal law, the reality is that they're political animals. And so it's not outside the realm of possibility that they would find verdicts based to a greater or lesser extent on their political views, with an eye on their political future. Now at the state level, some states elect their judges, which makes them political animals by definition. Because when they come up for re-election, they must win the approval of the people. So that may explain to some extent the bias that some judges bring to the bench. But what about the Supreme Court? This one is trickier. Why indeed? Well, Supreme Court justices are human after all. Is it possible that they have been somehow compromised by threats to themselves or their families? Trump appointed three of them, and yet they all ruled against hearing his suit, even though they refused to hear any evidence at all. And his last appointment, Amy Comey Barrett, testified during her confirmation hearing that she would only consider the constitutional issues and she would not allow any personal bias to interfere with her decisions. And yet, she never even heard the evidence and ruled against the president's team based on standing alone. How does that even happen? America is becoming a very lonely place for those of us who believe in the rule of law and the framework and values of the Constitution. Where is this leading us? It doesn't look like it's leading us to a very good place. And that's what I want to talk about next. We are at war, my friends, and we don't even know it. How do you prepare for a war when you don't even know you're fighting one? This isn't a war of words, and it's not a war with a single enemy. We are fighting a strategic war against many enemies, against Iran and Russia and China. And we're fighting a political war against the corruption of the Democrat Party, against the rhinos who are afraid to fight and take cover whenever there is too much controversy. And we're fighting a war against terrorism and a war against anti-Semitism and anti-Christian hate and a war against the socialist influence by entire school systems over our children, from kindergarten to university, and a war against the giant technology companies that have decided they know better how we should run our lives than we do, and against the politicians who make life-or-death decisions for us and demand that we obey. This is a war for all the things we believe in, the Constitution, liberty, self-reliance, and the freedom to live our lives the way we want to, guided by the founding principles of this great nation. We are fighting for the freedom to earn a living and to raise our families in whatever faith we choose to believe in. The ability to live our lives as free people, to make our own life decisions, and to live according to our deeply held beliefs. 
But there are those in power who don't see it the same way. They think that they know better how we should live. We see that in New York's Governor Cuomo, and New York City's Mayor de Blasio, and California's Governor Newsom, and Michigan's Governor Whitmer. This is the war, my friends. This is the war we are fighting now, and the corrupt and corrupted elections that we have just witnessed are at the core of our fight for America. There are no easy answers, but one thing is clear. The people on the left will not give up, and it will take all of our courage and all of our perseverance to preserve and protect the country we love. This story is far from over. Okay, here's another story, but it's connected. Over the last few days, Congress has been fighting a very nasty battle with itself. They said they were working on a bill to protect the country from another government shutdown. And it's also supposed to be a bill to help people all over the country who have been suffering from the coronavirus. So what did they come up with? A $2.3 trillion spending bill like nothing we have ever seen before. This bill was released to Congress on Monday morning and the vote was planned for Monday night. Do you remember what Nancy Pelosi infamously said about the Obamacare bill when she was asked what was in it? She said, quote, we have to pass the bill so you can find out what's in it, away from the fog of the controversy, unquote. Really, the bill she was talking about was 2,700 pages long, and it was put to a vote before anyone had a chance to read it. Well, that was just child's play compared to what happened on Monday. Members of Congress received the new so-called Coronavirus Relief Bill and Stimulus Package, and they were told they would probably have to vote on it that same night. Are you kidding? Obamacare was 2,300 pages long. This bill is 5,593 pages long. And although there was a general understanding of the overall outline, the devil, my friend, is in the details. And here are some of the details that have leaked out. Are they true? I don't know. Nobody has actually read the bill. But here are some of the leaks. For the Kennedy Center, $26.4 million. For the Smithsonian, $1 billion. For the National Art Gallery, $154 million for the National Art and Humanities, $167 million. You get the idea. And let's look at what we're giving to foreign countries. $453 billion to Ukraine. Israel will get $500 billion. Cambodia will get $85 million. Pakistan, $25 million dollars. And in the United States, illegal immigrants will get $1,800 and American citizens will get $600. Nancy Pelosi says that $600 is significant. Do you remember when Nancy Pelosi called the $2,500 from the Trump tax cuts crumbs? 
And now she's bragging about everyone getting $600? That's so significant? Give me a break. Now here's something else. This bill was negotiated entirely in secret by party leaders. Nearly every member of Congress in both parties and in both houses were excluded from the whole process of writing this bill. And members of Congress were told that they would not have any opportunity to change it in any way. This bill will cost the American taxpayers $2.3 trillion. And it will take us further down the road to national bankruptcy. This has to come to an end. But it's difficult to know how, because until the people who are empowered by all of this spending and power brokering, until it no longer benefits them, I don't see how we're going to stop it. This bill, the story of this bill, is huge, and there's a lot to say about it. So we will talk about it some more right after the break. So don't go away. I'll be right back. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? The good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM Sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Before the break, I was talking about the omnibus bill that just passed Congress and is on its way to the White House for the President to sign. But he may not. This so-called stimulus bill is a disaster. Its $2.3 trillion price tag includes only $900 billion for COVID-19 relief, but it has billions of dollars in pork including many non-pandemic measures such as combating the spread of Asian carp in the Great Lakes and grants to museums and the performing arts. And as I said before, the devil is in the details. Here are some of the details that the Democrats aren't saying much about and you can understand why the president doesn't like them very much. Because they show how much disdain the politicians in Washington have for the people who sent them there. In the first place, as I said before, the full omnibus bill has a price tag of $2.3 trillion, of which only $900 billion is earmarked for a COVID-19 stimulus and relief bill. The rest of the bill calls for huge expenditures that America cannot afford. $2.3 trillion is nearly 10% of our national debt. And our national debt is overwhelmingly huge, $27.5 trillion. So the stimulus bill falls far short of where it should be 
if it is going to be responsible and if it is going to provide much more support for the victims of the coronavirus. The president has threatened to veto the bill because, as he said, quote, it's really a disgrace. It's called the COVID relief bill, but it has almost nothing to do with COVID, unquote. The president pointed to the extravagance of the grants to the Smithsonian and other museums, as well as the Kennedy Center, which, as the president pointed out, isn't even open for business. Trump was furious that the bill included only $600 per person for COVID relief. He promised to veto it if Congress does not raise the payments to Americans from $600 per person to $2,000. He said, quote, I'm asking Congress to amend this bill and increase the ridiculously low $600 payment to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple, unquote. And in a moment of uncharacteristic exuberance, Nancy Pelosi said, quote, At last, the president has agreed to $2,000. Democrats are ready to bring this to the floor this week by unanimous consent. Let's do it, unquote. Well, of course, ask Nancy to spend more money, and she's ready as long as it's your money. She's ready, willing, and able. But in this case, the money will be going mostly to people who have been badly hurt by shutdowns, restrictions, loss of their businesses, and worse. So at least this expenditure will be worth it. The president listed the millions of dollars that were included in the spending package that he did not agree with, including $10 million for gender programs in Pakistan, of all places, and $2.5 million for internet freedom, whatever that is. In anticipation that the president may indeed veto the bill, attorney Lynn Wood, who is a strong supporter of President Trump, posted this, quote, any member of Congress who votes to override a Trump veto is a traitor to the United States of America, unquote. I, for one, am completely unimpressed with the Democrats' willingness to spend millions of dollars to art museums and performing arts centers when the aim should have been to shore up government spending, not increasing it by billions and billions, and by supporting the people who have been hurt so badly in the pandemic crisis. You know, this country is in a terrible mess. The conflict between the Democrats and the Republicans, pretending that it's business as usual when it is anything but, the Democrats ignoring the elephant in the room, the election results that called attention to massive fraud on their part, and the general atmosphere of anger and deep division between the left and the right. It's terrible. Families divided. Brothers and sisters not speaking to each other. A terrifying rise in violence on city streets, with the death toll rising every day. A dramatic rise in domestic violence and murder, and the cavalier attitude of too many governors and mayors who prefer to support the lawless rioters in the streets than their victimized, tax-paying constituents. What has happened to America? Well, one of the things that has happened is that governors and mayors have really lost control of what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be working to build their cities to protect and support their constituents. And they're doing just the opposite. 
They're supporting the rioters. They're supporting Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And to hell with their constituents. It's unbelievable. In California, for example, the state is pretty much locked down. And if you want to see what hypocrisy looks like, this is, this is really hard to believe. In some places, you can't even go out for a walk. The, the law is very specific. In Los Angeles, for example, Mayor Eric Garcetti issued an order that said that all residents had to stay at home. He said we must minimize contact with each other as much as possible. And what he wants everybody to do is to stay at home to the extent that you can't go to public and private gatherings. And this is what is forbidden. Walking, driving, traveling on pu public transportation, or on a bicycle, or on motorcycles or scooters, except if you are undertaking essential activities like, I guess going to the supermarket, going to the grocery store, health care, like the hospital or the doctor, it borders on insanity. And Los Angeles County has announced that its lockdown rules are going to continue on until August. It's not even January yet. You can't go out for a walk unless you are going out to shop or to go to the doctor. Or, and here's something, you can go to a place that is allowed to be open because it is considered to be essential, like the local liquor store. Or, if you live in the San Diego area, the local strip club. Of course, if you want to have your hair done, you can't do that. Under state order, private gatherings of any size are banned and all stores must close except for critical infrastructure and retail. What's bizarre about it is what the government considers to be critical retail. Strip clubs? Liquor stores? You can't make this stuff up. Okay, let's get back to something a little more serious. There have been a lot of rumors going around about what is in that big omnibus bill. One of them said, it turned out not to be true, but the rumor was that hidden in the bulk of the bill was a section that inhibited the president's ability to respond to an emergency. It isn't there. I did a search for it and it simply isn't there. This was apparently either removed or it was never in there in the first place. I do believe it was in a previous bill, but it wasn't passed. This supposedly was going to limit the president's power in an emergency in order to keep him from calling up the National Guard if there was a riot in a city or another disturbance that was large enough to be beyond control of local authorities. And in cities where the police force had actually been defunded, and there were several of them, this is a real possibility. And that's why this subject is important, even though, as it turns out, it wasn't in the bill. It's still relevant. So maintaining that ability for the president is really important. And what this was supposed to be referring to was the Insurrection Act of 1807 that authorizes the president to deploy military troops to suppress uprisings on American soil. That act 
which was signed by President Thomas Jefferson in 1807, says this, Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that in all cases of insurrection or obstruction to the laws, either the United States or any individual state or territory where it is lawful for the President of the United States to call forth the militia for to suppress insurrection or of causing the laws to be duly executed, it shall be lawful for him to employ for the same purposes such part of the land or naval forces of the United States as shall be judged necessary having first observed all the prerequisites of the law in that respect, unquote. The Insurrection Act can be used at the request of a state, but the president can invoke it himself, regardless of whether a governor or state legislature has requested it or given consent. Specifically, the current law is embodied in U.S. Code 252, Use of Militia and Armed Forces to Enforce Federal Authority. And it reads like this, whenever the president considers that unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages, or rebellion against the authority of the United States make it impracticable to enforce laws of the United States in any state by ordinary course of judicial proceedings, he may call into federal service such of the militia of any state and use such of the armed forces as he considers necessary to enforce those laws or to suppress the rebellion. Now, what that means essentially is that the president, if he sees an insurrection or a breaking of laws by a large group of people, so that law and order essentially breaks down in that location, it is incumbent on him, and he certainly has the authority, to call up the local National Guard, federalize them, and order them to restore justice. Many presidents have used this law, including Abraham Lincoln. Ulysses S. Grant used it in 1871 against the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina. Dwight D. Eisenhower used it in 1957 and John F. Kennedy in 1962 in order to enforce desegregation. Lyndon B. Johnson used it in 1965 to protect civil rights marchers in Alabama. And George H.W. Bush used it in 1991 to quell the riots in Los Angeles after the acquittal of four police officers in the vicious beating of a black man, Rodney King. If President Trump were to invoke the Insurrection Act in the face of post-election riots, he would no doubt have resistance from the left. But he would be within his right. But let's look at the situation as it is now and what the possibility is, the real possibility, that riots could erupt on the streets of our cities again. We are currently in a state of moderate turmoil. The Democrats are flexing their muscles, confident that their apparent victory at the polls on November 3rd won't be overturned by the legal challenges of Donald Trump and his team. We have talked about this at length earlier in the show and on other shows. We still have several weeks before this may be resolved. Some 75 to 80 million Americans truly believe that the election was stolen. And there is, as I have said earlier, a huge amount of evidence to back up their contentions. But so far, the courts have, for reasons unknown, at least to me, 
refuse to look at the evidence. So there is the distinct possibility that Biden will indeed be sworn in on January 20th. And we don't know what will happen after that. Traditionally, Americans have accepted the results of the elections and they've gone back to their lives only to spar and argue when the next election comes around. But this is not like anything that had ever happened before in America. The extent of the fraud and corruption in our election cycle is so overwhelming and so damning that it is difficult, if not impossible, for Trump's loyal supporters to accept it. You know, honestly, I don't get it. How do you argue with sworn testimony from more than a thousand people? How do you dispute documented evidence that fraud took place? Videos, audios, audits, and all manner of documentation. And when all that fails to get a fair hearing, no less a fair judgment, what do you do then? Where do you go from there? Well, if you're Antifa or BLM, you just go out in the streets and riot, burn, shoot, destroy. Or you march into someone else's neighborhood and threaten the residents and disturb the peace. But if you're a Trump supporter, that's not the way you roll. You gather together, sometimes in thousands, and you cheer and you chant, and then you pick up your trash and you go home. But how deep does the frustration and anger have to go before that is no longer a satisfactory option? At what point does the rage get so, so huge, so unmanageable, that it needs a better outlet? Will the activists on the right, Trump's loyal following, will they take up arms? Will they revolt? I don't think so, but I could be wrong. Everyone has his limits. And look what's happening. The wheels of justice are falling off the wagon. Our system of justice isn't working. If you can't get a fair trial, if you can't even get a hearing, where do you go from there? I don't have the answers. I only have the questions. And here's an interesting story, and it, it's one I like. This past week, two submarines made an appearance in the Middle East in a show of power. The U.S. sent a nuclear-powered submarine through the Strait of Hormuz and into the Persian Gulf in what looked like a warning to Iran. The USS Georgia is an Ohio-class nuclear power sub, and it may have been carrying up to 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles, or as many as 66 special ops. The Georgia was escorted by two guided missile cruisers that passed through the Straits and into the Persian Gulf. Now, at the same time, one of Israel's submarines openly crossed the Suez Canal and ended up opposite the Persian Gulf in a show of force against Iran. Although there was no official statement from the Israel Defense Forces, the Israel Defense Forces Chief of Staff, Aviv Kohavi, warned Iran against attacking Israel. He said, the IDF will forcefully attack anyone who takes part from near or far in activities against the state of Israel or Israeli targets. I'm saying this plainly and I'm describing the situation as it is. The response and all the plans have been prepared 
and practiced, unquote. It's nice to know that when confronting Iran, Israel and the United States are partners. I hope it lasts for a long, long time. Well, the hour's up and I have to sign off, but thank you for spending it with me. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.